What I do want to talk about tonight, and you can flip there with me, is Ephesians chapter 4, the list of gifts that Jesus gave the church. I'm going to read that by way of introduction and repetition. When I was a younger preacher, I thought that the um, gift and skill of preaching was to say something so provocative and so cutting and sharp that everybody just got it and changed for the better. Um, over years of ministry, what I've realized is that repetition is what makes a difference for people. Hearing something over and over again over the course of weeks, months, and years is actually what causes the church to shift focus or to change behavior to do something. <clears throat> so I've, I've, been on a, I've been on a track, which is not normal for me. I don't usually preach series. I, I, get, I get bored, to be honest, and it's hard for me to stay focused. I'm a little bit of a spiritual attention deficit kid. So um, this is a little bit out of my zone, but it's been really important to me. I think it's one of the, as, as, as a church planter, looking at our group here in Boston and looking at the church more broadly, these ideas of the system of the church and how we function and our gifts, especially what we all contribute to the body of Christ is a really, really important subject to me. It's very, very dear to me. So we went through the, the list of the gifts in Romans 7, and now we're looking at Ephesians 4. And by way of repetition, we'll go over it again, that we're looking at, I, I, at least I do anyhow, Romans, the, the, the list of seven gifts in Romans, I call motivational gifts. They're individualized. They're how you see the world. They're what matters to you. They're like your framework for interacting with the world. That's prophet, teacher, exhorter, um, uh, what am I missing? Uh, server, giver, ruler, or organizer, and mercy. That's the seven in Romans. Those are individualized. They're from inside you, how you look out and see the world. Now we're looking, and then there's a list in 1 Corinthians that I term, and a lot of people do, manifestation gifts. These are supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. So they're the things like word of wisdom, word of knowledge, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, miracles, discerning, healing. These things are the manifestations of the Spirit of God in the believer's life. And what we're looking at here in Ephesians, I typically call ministry gifts. And the ministries are these kind of like places in the church where God's adding these, these ministries to the church in order to make us well-rounded. So they're kind of like a, <clears throat> an office that you sit in. I'm going to start here. I was going to end here, but I want to start here. Uh, a way that I think about that is like an XYZ graph, right? So you have X here, Y here, and Z here. A 3D graph. So you can plot yourself in these three gift lists. So if you call this Romans, you call this Corinthians, and you call this Ephesians, you can plot yourself along these three axes. So maybe here's our seven gifts here, well, however many that is, and here's our, there's actually a 12 of these, and here's our seven here. So you say, okay, well, I'm here on this, and I'm here there, and I'm here here, so this is where I am. Here's a little bit of weirdness. I think that when you plot the whole church, the composite of all these giftings is 
a graphic representation of the body of Christ. It makes up Christ himself, like all of his, when he says greater things than these shall you do, he, he's talking about the potential of all of the Christian body, universal, operating in their ministries and doing their things, makes up more than he could have done in himself in that one place in Palestine. As amazing as that was, the church across the world and across time, with all of us doing our part as his body, makes up more, the sum of those parts is more than what he could do by himself as one person in Palestine. So this, this is a way that I think of all of this. But we're going to talk about here, we're going to talk about Ephesians. We started this the last time I spoke here. Um, let's read this passage and then we'll, we'll dive in. I'm going to do a little bit of review and then we'll move forward. Um, why don't we start... I'm going to start just at the beginning of the chapter. Chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called, the job you do, the purpose for your being, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all the heavens, that he might fulfill all things. I might talk about that at some point, but I, I'm not going to tackle it today. But this notion of st starting here, Jesus starts here, he comes down to earth, which is very low, then he goes even lower into the belly of the earth, and then he ascends up to heaven, is a, is a trajectory of the ministry of Christ that, that's a model for us to follow. Anyhow, it says in verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Oh, I'm sorry. Of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, that speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, make it increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love. <clears throat> it's a really powerful chapter, yeah? Like, there's so much there. 
But he's connecting all of that. Like where we come from, this, this place of unity, this is where he wants us to start our thinking, like lowliness, humility, and unity. This is where we're coming from. This is what he's trying to build up. And he's talking about these outcomes. I don't know if you remember we did this last time. These outcomes that, are, that equal a mature church. Right? It's not being tossed to and fro. It's not being deceived by cunning men. It's being capable of doing the things that God's called us to do. What's it say there? Uh, come to a perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Not children tossed to and fro, carried about by all these wicked, all these doctrines. This is, this is the goal that he's laying out for us. And the path to get there is these ministries. So we have apostle. We have prophet. We have evangelist. And we have... In, in the King James' pastor, we often call that shepherd. And we have teachers. And these hold up. They make this possible. And our, our thesis is that in much, of the, in much of the Western church, these have been taken away. And that the whole church has been built primarily out of the ministry, if you're lucky, with a shepherd, but often just out of teachers. And this cannot sustain a mature church. This has to fall. And it does. It falls in not accomplishing all these things. It can't keep itself doctrinally pure. It can't stay on track. It can't produce the ministries it's supposed to. It can't produce strength and maturity and stability. This just isn't enough. Because, because the Lord, He delivered to His church all these things. And He wanted them there. They're not ancillary. They're not incidental. They're not, well, if it works, do it. If not, whatever. They're the things He wanted to hold up to produce this outcome. Okay, we went over all that before. I just want to remind us how we're starting at looking at this. We also talked some about, about this apostolic ministry. Like I said, the, 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 the apostle prophetic and sometimes evangelistic are three that are not often recognized. And we did an exercise last time we talked about this where we raised hands and asked who knew of somebody who was in each of these roles. Um, and, and because we have church planters in Boston, most of us know church planters, but who knows somebody who's a church-recognized prophet? Like, who do you know in your life that you can say, oh, that brother or that sister, they, they're, they're prophets in the church. Like, listen, this is, when the Bible is written, that's how they talked about people. Like, in the apostolic and post-apostolic era, that's how they talked. The church was established by teachers and prophets. The, the people in Antioch that commissioned Paul and Barnabas, the, 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 the prophets and teachers of the church, set that all in order. They had people who they knew. It's not like, 
well, you know, prophecy is this kind of thing, and sometimes people say things, and you find out later that that was really from God. These are people who are known for their role and their ministry of being prophets in the church. Stephen had daughters who did what? Prophesied. Anna was known as a prophetess. Philip, sorry. Agabus was a known prophet in his church. When that guy showed up and started speaking in the spirit, you knew what his job was. Paul talks about these things in Corinthians, in Corinthians 14, and that's the manifestation list in Corinthians 12, but by the time he gets to the end of that discourse in, in 1 Corinthians 14, he's saying, hey, here's how you use this gift properly in the church. Uh, one, at most, two, and that by course, and if somebody else starts speaking, sit down and be quiet. That's how well the prophetic gifts were known. There were whole schisms in the post-apostolic church when the church in Rome started forbidding prophecy in the churches. Like it was a democratized thing. There were people who were known as prophets all throughout the early church, and they would speak in the meetings as prophetic people. And the church in Rome at a certain point said, no more of this, it's too crazy, I don't want to deal with it. The, church, the bishop in Rome, it's the first, actually the first bishop schism in the early church is over forbidding prophecy in the Roman church. So it's a big deal. And it's how the church was built. And it's, it's really lacking. We're going to talk about that today. But I want to finish up apostles first. <clears throat> I feel like we have a little more. We, we talk about this church planting. I use those terms synonymously. So whichever one I say, just substitute whichever one you're more comfortable with. I just want to, the reason I, the reason I continue to throw in the word apostolic is just so that we remember we are talking about a biblical role. That term is so abused and misused that it, there's good reasons to avoid it sometimes, especially in certain circles. But I want to remind us, we're talking about a biblical role. We're not just making this up. It's what we call church planters. That's our most common terminology for it is what the, the Bible is referring to as this apostolic ministry. Okay, so the way we define these, and it's defined by Alan Hirsch this way, is that the apostolic ministry um, can be defined this way. They're either the stewards, or I like custodians, of the DNA of the ecclesia. And I like this for a lot of reasons. They're custodians. It's not theirs. It's not their gospel. It's not their church. They're caretakers. They're stewards. Steward is another good word. I like steward in the context of like the, the old world when you had a household servant, like somebody for your ukos, somebody for your household that maintained your business and your debts and your, made sure everything was operating smoothly within your home. That steward that was often a slave, that's the kind of role that I think of the apostles in the kingdom of God. And Paul refers to himself very much in that category. It's good if you reign because we don't. It's good if you excel because we're debased. It's good if you're great because we're ignoble. This contrast that he draws, we're the low ones. We're just like, Paul, Paul views his apostleship as like a slave, a steward slave in the house of the kingdom of God. 
It's my job to take care of this stuff and make sure that things are working. And, and I like this term too because there's a structure to the church that, that, that the apostolic ministry is, is very concerned about. Not just what do we say, not just what do we think, but how is this fleshing out? When you put the plan together, what does it look like? And then we all know that term, the church. And they come from the church, in the ideal sense, they come from the church to found the church. So those are important pieces of that ministry. And I want to talk a little bit so um, so that we understand how to think of this ministry and how it should be functioning and why it matters. Let's, let's go back to the original context, right? Let's think about Paul being sent out from Antioch. So you have this church in Antioch, right? And, and at a certain point, it seems good to them and the Holy Ghost to separate these two brothers and send them, apostolos, send them, out as messengers for the church in Antioch to found new Christian communities. And so they go here, and then they go here, and then they go up here, and then they go way out here, and they they make all these little connections. And this is no small thing in the first century especially. Like, it's it's a miracle that this ever happened. I think about Paul's and his ministry all the time. Like, like when he goes to Troas, I don't. I, I looked at a map one time. It's a huge journey. I don't know. How, I don't know if he went on donkey. I don't know if he went on cart. I don't know how much of it he walked. I don't know how much of that was just him slogging across land, talking to whoever happened to be on the road and whatever little village he came up with, came across. And in every place, he's saying the same kind of stuff. And he's bringing this message from his church in Antioch, where he's been sent, to talk about Jesus in the Gentile world, to talk about this crucified Jew that somehow is God. Now, there's no Western civilization. There's no codified New Testament canon. There's no... This, what he's talking about, it's hard to contextualize that for me, because I live in the West, because I live in the 21st century, because I live millennia after him and the influence of his work. But in that day, well, like imagine just some, some you walking, you're on the train in, in the way into Boston and some guy's like, yeah, I know, these Ty, I know this Taiwanese guy you've never heard of, he was God. What? He was God? Yeah, yeah, and he died and he rose again from the dead. Okay, weirdo. Like, that's what most of the people that experience Paul talking about this stuff. And so, so, in part due to his charisma and personality and long-suffering and forbearance and care and love of the people he encountered, and in part due to the manifestations of the Spirit that God worked with him and the other apostles where there were healings and miracles and things were done that couldn't be done by, by men's flesh, people started to listen. And where they listened, there was a new little group of Christians. And these little communities start popping up. 
right? And then what happens is that he keeps going. Like he's not here for terrible long. And then he's going on to the next place and the next place. And then however much longer, years later, he's going to come back through or one of his apprentices is going to go through. And, and now, uh, that doesn't work. Now they've grown. It's all right, I don't need. Now they're bigger, but maybe this one's gone, and these ones have grown. What does that look like? What do these apostolic churches look like in the time from the first time that the apostle comes through, this apostolic team comes through, and finds some men of peace, and baptizes a few people, and starts a new Christian community, till they come back around again? What does that look like? This is what's fascinating to me. What does life look like in these little communities in the first century when they're beginning? Because they don't have cell phones, they don't have airplanes, they don't get to, they don't get, to get Paul on the phone and say, hey, we've got a problem, what are we supposed to do here? They got, maybe if you're lucky, if you could track them down, you got a three-month trip to send somebody with a letter and then a three-month trip back till he gets an answer, six-month a six-month delay to get an answer from your apostle in some crisis that's happening in the church. It's pretty intense. Do you think that they were dependent on the Spirit of God? Of course they were. Because these were God's people. And He loved them. And He had worked for them. Thank you, brother. He had brought them there, and he was going to see them through. So when you hear Paul talking about the author and the finisher of our faith, him who called us will lead us. These kinds of concepts are vitally important for these churches. And, and, and what's it like to be this guy? How do you know anything? Like what? You've got a couple of guys with you. And you've got the Septuagint. So praise God, you can, read the, you can read the Old Testament in Greek. And that's it? How are you going to decide, like, didn't Paul say something about how we were supposed to dress? What did he say? Um, modest. What, what does that mean? This head covering thing? What was he talking about? Do you remember what he said? And then finally we write it down. Like, okay, now we've got something to go off of. But how much isn't on there? And what's this guy know? He's grown up, he's grown up in Colossae as, some, as a pagan his whole life. Now he's got a whole new perspective in the world. What? I just can't imagine how complicated these scenarios were. Dealing with these kinds of things from Acts 15. Like, how do I interact? I live in a pagan world. I have a pagan family. I've got temples around me. There's bathhouses. There's all kinds of filth in every direction. Pederasty, homosexuality, all kinds of iniquity, thieving, disgusting cities with, you know, people on top of each other, sewers open everywhere, just all kinds of problems in these people's lives. But there they are, these new Christian communities. Founded under the teaching and example of these apostolic men and the work that they did among them when they were there. 
Now, in this phase, I think about I think about this like going from here to here, this growing church movement in in a few steps. What I mean by that is that I think of the church as going through developmental milestones, just like we think of a child growing up. You know, when we, when, when you have a baby, you, you, you're mindful of these milestones. Like, how old are they when they start sitting up? How old are they when they start holding their head up? How old are they when they start battling? How old are they when they start feeding themselves? Like, all these milestones are developmental milestones, and they're within a normal range. Like, you're supposed to be doing this between here and here, and you're supposed to be doing this between here and here. And there's these phases that you expect a child to grow through, and there are phases that I expect a church to grow through. And I think that, so here, let's map it out a little bit. So this process of this, these apostolic teams coming into a new place and founding a new Christian community, why, why are they there? They're there specifically because of, of the apostolic people who came there. Their charisma, their care, their example, their witness, and their works. Well, that's all the makings of a cult of personality. Right? So all the potential is in these new little groups to just become little Paul-like communities or Cephite communities or Pauline communities, they, which, is, which was happening, which the Corinthian epistles written specifically to address. So we know it was a problem in these early communities. This idea that I'm a, I'm a follower of Paul, I'm a follower of the one who came and brought the message to us. This is a real dangerous potential in these new Christian communities. So the first potential is a cult of personality. They confuse the apostle for who they're following. So what's the remedy? The remedy for this is itinerancy. Paul's not staying there. He's going to the next place. But that, but that itinerancy, these, these apostolic people moving to the next place has all the potential to create our next... Each one of these developmental stages for these new Christian communities is a potential fatal step. And I, we don't read about the ones that don't make it. I don't know how many there were. I don't know how many little places Paul plants a, a couple of disciples, finds a man of peace, and then we never read about again because they didn't make it past step one or step two or step three. But the potential problem when, when the, the dynamic charismatic leader leaves this area is a power vacuum. Who's going to fill the spot? So what do we do then? Now we have a power vacuum. Now we look at these kind of like Democratic solutions. And this is really about like becoming a family. The, the communion and the community are the resolution, the potential resolution for the power vacuum. Because we know each other and we love each other and we care about each other. And if that gets established at the communion table and in the community, then you can overcome the potential liability of a power vacuum. It's not me trying to lord over all of you. It's not you trying to best me and who's going to call the shots. 
It's brothers who see each other's families sitting around a table and talking about their problems, talking about their issues, listening to one another, giving each other place. And, and out of this, something really beautiful happens. Out of this, you start to develop ministries. Right? You start to see, well, who's good at conflict resolution? Who's good at counseling? Who's good at bringing people in? Who's good at talking through things when we have new people come in? Who's good at explaining our doctrines and our beliefs to them so that they get it and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I can understand. Who's good at doing that? And ministries arise out of this phase. But we can't stay here because there's, there's, a, there's a problem that can arise out of this democratic phase. Uh, I don't have a good term for it. I often call it the tyranny of democracy. Like, you can, just because we all vote to be whatever, like, we decide we all just want to paint our faces purple, and that's what it means to be Christian to us, or, or wear plain coats, or whatever. We just decide we want to do something because it's what we want to do. And it, 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 that can affect negatively the potential for the gospel because we're just making traditions for ourselves. And so democratic institutions can tend towards those kinds of things. Well, if we have a problem, let's just all decide what we agree on. Whether God approves of that or not, we all decided this is a good solution, so it's what we're going to do. And that's a potential problem with this phase of development. So... Um, Let's just call it tyranny of democracy. The resolution to this phase, the next developmental stage, is official leadership. So these guys, this original set, Paul and his apprentices, after these churches have grown, go back through and Paul gives specific instructions to his apprentices and says, here's what I want you to look for. Here's the men I want you to find out in these places where we've been, where there's new communities. I want you to find the men that are good at these kinds of things. I want, you to I want them to be proven. I want them to be exercised. Where do they get proven? Where do they get exercised? Because ministries grew out of this democratic phase of church life. I want you to find the people who have done that work well, and I want you to set these churches in order. Order. With the ministries. And there's a potential, like this transition, each one of these transitions, you can see how there's potential to upset the apple cart, to flip things over, because you're doing a radically different move. This new developmental phase, everybody's got to flow with it. Everybody's got to change. Okay, we used to do it this way, now we're going to go this way. And that flexibility gets built into, baked into this way of establishing church systems. And so, I think that this is, all of this is a design feature, not a design flaw, and not an accident of church history. This is a purposeful way that the church was established under apostolic growth models so that the church will go through each of these phases. Because who are the leaders that you get out of this process? They're leaders that have gone through years of, years of time in their community, with their brotherhood, talking about how... Okay, so you're going to ordain a bishop here, right? At some point. 
What's that bishop been doing for the last three years? He's been sitting at tables. He's been in people's homes. He's been working through problems when he wasn't the bishop, trying to figure out, how do we come to consensus, brothers? How do we stay on track here? How, you two, I know that you're having problems. Let's sit down and talk about it. Let's make peace between you. He's been doing all of that work unofficially before someone comes from the apostolic team and lays hands on him and says, Brother, we have seen you doing this work. We recognize your skill and ability in these ways. You've been proven in the fire of adversity in these ministries, and we want to call on you to do this as your vocation for the church. And that's where the ordained ministers are born out of. That's why the requirements are essential. That's why they're as important as they are. And why the time of going through this process with your church is an important process for developing the kind of leaders that God wants out of the church. This is an apostolic growth model. And this is what we're trying to, to create in Fathers of the Way churches, with Fathers of the Way church planters. This is what our vision is for how to cause the church to grow across the country and across the world, is with a process just like this. It's worth mentioning, too, when we talk about these leadership, you know, we've, we've talked about it already before, but the, the, the order of operation is that an apostolic team starts these new Christian communities, and as they grow, what, they, what the first obstacle that these new communities come across is logistical. So we start with deacons, just like Acts, right? You have the 12 in Jerusalem, and then they, they have the controversy with the Greek widows, and so they need deacons to put things in order to keep things logistically moving forward. And then the last step is a long-term, durable, stable Bishop. Plural. Plural in all those cases. I've been talking about this for years. And and it's I I don't know what about this process people miss. But I keep having, we keep explaining it. And I think that looking at it, thinking about what was it like for Paul to start churches, how did that work, what did it look like, is the key to trying to understand what we're talking about when we look at these, these models. <clears throat> and maybe I've just been bad at explaining. That's quite possible. I want to give a little more definition aside from this, practical definition to what we expect out of the church planting role. There's four main responsibilities that we've enumerated from the record of the apostles in the, in the New Testament. There's four main responsibilities that we draw out of these ministries when we look at them play out in the New Testament. One is the, the first responsibility for the church planting role is to establish new Christian communities. I use this as very common shorthand. Do you all, are you all familiar with this? 
like where a lot of people are familiar with is Xmas. And in the culture wars, that means taking Christ out of Christmas, which went to God. But um, X is Chi in Greek. It's just a shorthand for Christ. So Christian is there. I, I write it in my emails all the time, and people are like, I get angry responses like, are you trying to take Christ out of Christians and all this stuff? So, <laughs> so just for the public record, that's Christian. Um, so they found these new Christian communities. This is in, in, in doctrine and practice. He's supposed to, they're supposed to establish what the, what the beliefs and practice of these communities are. They're charged with teaching those things, making, bringing people in, explaining these things, this kind of like holistic view of what the church should, should be is they're, they're, they're responsible for establishing that. The second thing is they, that they connect the churches. Um, let's, let's, let's say connect these communities. In a network. Via personal relationships. And this, um, this may be an uh, 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 easy to neglect the importance of this, but it's vital. It's a vital role of the apostolic ministry. And here's why: just a few different reasons. The idea that Imagine in our little map, you know, with these little groups, right? These little groups who are far flung in the, in the Greco-Roman world. There's three Christians here. There's six here. There's four there. Imagine how small the world feels. Like you just got your head down and you're trying to not be persecuted and keep your life going and, and make disciples and be faithful to God and everything so right here in front of you, all the troubles, all the toil, the idea that you can get lost in that, in that place. And, and, and think about how busy lives are here in Boston. Think about everything that everybody's got going on and how easy it is to just get into the slog of life and be like, day after day after day after day, this is my life. But these apostolic relationships, they kind of pull your head up and you say, oh, the church is way bigger than what's happening here. Mm -hmm. There's people doing stuff over there. There's faithful brothers here. It's not just us right here. The, you get, you know, you, then you get visitors to come through. And we have a, you, know, you have a brother from Minneapolis or a brother from Toronto. And you're like, oh, what's God doing there? And it's encouraging and it's uplifting to hear that whether I'm struggling here or things are going great here, that God's at work all over the place. It's not just us and our little family toiling and eking out our existence and doing whatever we can, but that God is at work here and there and there and there, and that the kingdom is moving forward. And I don't know about you, but that's a huge boon to my faith, to see God working in other places with other people 
and these spontaneous growths and spontaneous discipleship and faithful brothers and sisters doing faithful things and becoming an, a, a challenge or an encouragement or how did you guys do that? This opportunity to share information and resources. Resources are a huge part. The collection of, of offerings to send to Jerusalem for the famine is a huge part of the reason for these apostolic networks, but also for personnel. You know, to be have imagine the value of, of relational networks in a in a persecuted world. For Paul to be able to say, I'm sending Sister Phoebe up there with a letter from me to, and, and the collection. I want you to receive her like you would receive me. She's worked for me, she's faithful, that kind of testimony from your apostle. Like you can open the door and let Sister Phoebe in. You don't have to worry that she's She's going to narc on the church and bring trouble or, or make a mess with the people that are there. She's, she's verified and vetted by our apostle. They know who. I, I got a call last week from the brothers in, in, in Minneapolis. Hey, Joshua and Patrick are here. Are they in good standing of the church? This ability to verify our networks and relationships and say, yeah, we're one of the same. Like we can trust each other. There's a, good, there's a good faithful testimony of this brother in this place so you can, you can know that he's faithful as, as you interact with one another. This stuff is, is really, really important. Um, the third responsibility for the apostolic ministry is <coughs> excuse me, to weigh in in disciplinary matters. Um, disciplinary matters are particularly thorny for new churches. They're particularly thorny for all churches. Um, when the church has to exercise discipline over people, it, it, it can go sideways really easy. It takes wisdom and experience and grace and trust and love and a lot of things to deal with disciplinary matters in the church and to, to produce a likelihood of positive outcomes. And so this is a place where the apostles we see in the scriptures are supposed to be weighing in. If you look in, in the Corinthian epistles in particular, we see a, a, a really well-documented testimony of exactly this. Paul hears what's happened from some reliable sources. He makes a judgment. He speaks the issue. He gives direction to the whole church. Here's what you need to do. And then when he hears the response, he sends another epistle back and says, hey, praise God. Enough is enough. He's repented. You need to receive him again. Don't overburden him. Make, him. make peace in this situation. Bring him back in the fold. Receive him as your brother. All these instructions come to produce the whole outcome that we hope for in these situations. That there's a removal, a distancing, the difficult pain of separation, trouble in the life, and then a coming back of receiving, a loving, a caring, and reinstituting one another into each other's lives. This is the trajectory we hope for. And so the apostles shepherd over that. Because what can often happen, and I've seen it happen time and time again, is that if the church doesn't stay together on those matters in particular, they're some of the most factionalizing matters that happen in the church is over discipline. Well, I don't think that it should have been this way, or I don't agree that this should have happened. Well, I'm on his side. Well, I'm on her side. And this is where you get rifts in the church that, that are really dangerous for long-term unity. So that's another important place for the apostolic ministry. And then lastly, establish... 
long-term leadership. And this is essentially, in one sense, working yourself out of a job. Like, the apostle wants to get the church established to the place where he's not needed there anymore. I kind of think of it, Paul says you have 10,000 teachers in Christ, but not many fathers. I think of it as going from a father over the church to a grandfather. Like, there's still connection, there's still love, there's still wisdom to offer, there's still support and help that, that the church gets from the apostles. Um, even after they're established. And, and we see these communications between churches and these durable bonds that come from these apostolic relationships that go well past the lives of the apostles. The connection between apostolic churches goes well into the post-apostolic era. And the way that they were relating each, each other through their apostles develops relationships that are long-term and durable for, for generations in the early churches. So... That's kind of a, a practical definition and overview of, of the apostolic ministry. I'll just leave that up for now. <clears throat> okay, let me... I might just stop and leave profits for the next time we speak because I have a few more observations I want to make and then I might just cut it off and that's a good stopping place and we can talk about the prophetic ministry the next time and I can give it its due. Um, a few observations about, about this apostolic ministry. What, one important thing, um, I actually just heard from a friend that the, the State College brothers ordained a church planter, which I was very glad to hear. And, and I asked the brother who's telling me about that, it's Ernest Evie for the, uh, I, don't, I don't know if anybody in here knows Ernest, but congratulations Ernest, that's great. What I was, what I was curious to hear is that, I, I asked this brother, were the brothers there precise in their terminology? Because I know brother Ernest is a very evangelistic man. And so I, what I was asking was, did they ordain an evangelist or did they ordain a church planter? Because those are not the same. And how do they differ? Because both of them have evangelistic interests. Obviously, if you're going out from your church to found new Christian communities, there's an evangelistic component. And Paul writes to Timothy, do not neglect the work of an evangelist. It's an important component to the work that an apostolic ministry does. But there is a difference. And what's the difference? The difference is that an evangelist brings in individuals and an apostle is setting up new systems. An apostle is creating a new environment for the church, a new community, not just a new convert. And that's the difference between those two ministries. So the, the evangelist in a given church is adding individuals. The, the apostolic ministry is intended to be sent out from the church to multiply the churches. We're not just adding people into the faith. We're adding churches who are systems and, and networks and, and, and communities that then do the work of the evangelist in that place. You see the difference? So, so that's one observation is this difference between the evangelistic role versus the, the apostolic role. It really comes down to the difference between individual outreach and community outreach. Another observation is that 
I think it's really healthy. This notion of, of the apostles establishing long-term leadership, it's a healthy thing to model um, authority without um, having to be holding on to power and influence. A transitional form of authority is what we're talking about with apostolic ministries. These people have a, a very important authoritative role in these new Christian communities, but it's temporary. It's not something that's going to stay in that place forever. And the ability to transition power, right, to move from one phase to another, is a good model for us in how we should interact with authority. That, that authority is predicated on, on non-coercive methods. It's, it's predicated on uh, a, a lived testimony and, ex and, and witness in front of the people who are listening. And this ability to let go is a difficult thing, right? Like, um, like it is with our children, to watch your children marry and move on. Is a, it's difficult to let go. And this idea of church planters creating these communities or working very intimately with them for them to, to be alive and to keep moving forward, but not to hold on to that, but to let go and let it grow and let it become what God wants it to do, is a good model for how we should interact with authority. Another thing is that um, apostolic apprenticeships, like with Timothy and Titus, which are very well modeled in the scriptures, along with others, even John Mark and Barnabas and Silas, these relationships between apostolic men are, well, they're dynamic and complicated and sometimes difficult, right? Like with John Mark. Um, and you see the full range of, of experience in, the, in that interpersonal relationship. And it pulls a lot of other people in. Or Paul and Peter in, in, in their controversies with another. Um, these relationships are, are dynamic and complicated because they're ambitious, strong-minded, strong-willed men who are involving in the, involved in these things. Um, but the opportunities that come from having an apostolic growth model is that there's places for single people, there's places for young people, men and women, to be involved in a ministry that's really important to the church. It creates a whole world of opportunity, right? We harp a lot on the requirements of the offices, right? Especially for the bishop that he has faithful children and all this stuff. This is for old men. It's called elders for a reason, all this stuff. Well, where are young people supposed to go? And I think there's a crisis in Western Christianity among young people due in large part to not giving them dragons to slay and conquests to do and adventures to go on and work to do and something to put their hand to the plow and get busy and take some real risks with their life and their, and their well-being in order to do something bigger than themselves. And that potential challenge to lay in front of young people, it comes out of the apostolic ministry. Um, you know, Zach Johnson has been instrumental in us having a church in Minneapolis. I would not have started a church in Minneapolis with those brothers there if it hadn't been for Zach's connections, Zach's labor, and Zach's work. And as, as a, a junior apprentice to my church planting ministry, he's been absolutely vital. He's been my Timothy there. And he's been, he's a little less now that he's married, but, which is instructive. But, um, but it's been vital to have a younger brother with more time and more capacity and a broader range of connections than I have to be involved in that work. And there's a church there specifically because of his work. 
And that, that's what's available to our single people in these kinds of church planting roles. And so we have this beautiful opportunity for mentorship, right? With older brothers who are in the apostolic ministry to work with younger people. Chloe goes with me and in, in, in does some of this work too, both in Africa and in Minneapolis. Like to be able to bring single people along and use them in these ministries is a fantastic opportunity for them to start thinking about what they want to do with them, their lives and whether or not they want to get married and change course and direction and change the focus of their life or if they want to stay focused on church work. All that becomes tangible and, and realistic under an apostolic church growth model where there's work for, for our single people to do and even particularly our young people. <coughs> Guided, directed, meaningful difficult work to do. So this multi-generational collaboration and mentorship is, is a great opportunity that comes out of this. Um, connecting the whole church with a global vision and purpose, you know, I, 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 it's really important that the church be localized. It's really important that we see our church and our witness here as for making converts and building the kingdom here in Boston. But it's important to me at least to have a bigger sense of what the kingdom of God is than just what, what God's doing here among us. And so this broader vision, this expansive vision comes from people who are looking at, thinking about, talking about, and doing this kind of apostolic growth models. Uh, and and a last observation that I have about the church planting ministry is that I think that for a lot of reasons, <clears throat> the church planters are well disposed. They have a broader, okay, look, like, so, so I do... I do a fair bit of pastoral work here with people, with our people in our church in Boston. Um, by default, sometimes I feel bad that I'm the people, I'm the person people call, but I, I do that work. And working in individual lives is really meaningful to me. I love people. I love my people. I love our people, and I love trying to. I love hearing them and trying to find uh, resolution difficulties in their lives. All this. The pastoral ministry is very engaging to me. I love working with people. Um, but there's a different kind of thing when, you, when you're looking at communities. So like the individual versus the community collective are two different evaluations. And to look at a community of people and say, where I'm trying to go with this is that the church planting ministry, because its focus is extra local, it has a bigger data set to say, if you do this, this is the outcome. If you change this, this is what happens. If you strengthen this, this is what happens. And that kind of like experimental field to work in in ministry to see, oh, the brothers in this place, they made this choice and it had this outcome. And the brothers there made a different choice and it had a different outcome. And that kind of like big view of what's happening in the church, I think is a part of why this DNA concept makes sense to me because you have a chance to see when you're watching whole communities of people interact with problems, go through decisions, deal with issues, 
make decisions about their their doctrine and practice, all this stuff. You get to see outcomes with many more people and groups of them instead of just one group. And so this is another another asset that I think helps contribute to the apostolic ministry holding up that promise out of the Ephesians Ephesians uh, passage. <clears throat> okay. I think I'm going to call that the end of the apostolic overview. And the next time I speak, we'll talk about the prophetic ministry, which actually I'm really, really eager to talk about. Um, I think it's something that we need to be thinking and praying about. I've, I've preached over the years on the prophetic giftings, and we need to cultivate a heart to hear, because you have to choose to hear a prophet. Prophets are easy to ignore, they're easy to dismiss, and they're easy to turn your ear from. And we're not, we're not as much nobler or better than the Jews as we think we are sometimes. They had so much input from God through the prophetic ministries that they rejected time and time again. And we need to be mindful of ourselves lest we also fall.